morning. So open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Uh, we're going through this book of the Bible, and I, and I love it, and Revelation, chapter 5, this week. I want to mention a couple of things as you're turning, and, and do open your Bible and follow along, and uh, stay, with the, stay with me as we look at a few verses together. So uh, in the atrium is a table about safe families, and you see information in your bulletin about it. I just wanted to commend that ministry to you. It's a ministry that helps children and families in crisis, sometimes helping them to stay out of the foster care system or helping those who are uh, kind of in that world. And it's a great ministry. I love it. And uh, you can stop at the, uh, out in the atrium at their table and find out more about it. Some of you probably, this is a ministry that God would have you participate in. And the membership class is a week from today. If you want to join our church, you can do it through the class. Or if you'd just like to find out more about the church, I teach that class from four to six next Sunday. If you're planning to come, just sign up if you would. And let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. Last week, we were reminded of Jesus. We saw a picture. We sort of looked over the shoulder of John the Apostle as he showed us a picture of what heaven is going to be like. And we saw Jesus as a lion, all of the power of the lion, and we saw him as a lamb. In fact, as a lamb that was slain, a slaughtered lamb. And we were reminded that Jesus has all the power and authority of heaven and earth, and yet he gave himself for us, sacrificed his life for us. And we see more of that picture now in Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to read just three verses with you uh, this morning. But let's sort of glance over his shoulder as John shows us this vision of heaven and read beginning Revelation 5 verse 8. The Bible says, When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. So let's note this, some lessons about the lamb sacrificed. Remember last week, the father, we saw the picture of the father sitting on the throne with a scroll in his hand. And no one was worthy of opening that scroll. Not a single human. None of us are worthy in any sense to be in heaven, much less to take the scroll from the throne room of the Lord, from the hand of God. And yet Jesus, remember John wept and wept and wept. And then they said, don't weep. There's one who's worthy. And Jesus, the lamb who was slain, was worthy. And he took the scroll that has the seven seals. We'll see those seals in the weeks ahead. And then uh, shows us more of what's going to happen in the future. We'll see more of that in the weeks ahead. Ahead, But I want us to note some lessons that the lamb sacrifice teaches to us. So if you're a note taker, and if you're not usually, maybe today you do that. Just write these three simple things down. Write these three ideas about the lamb sacrifice. Uh, let's note this together. Number one, note the lamb sacrifice leads to worship. So we see in heaven and, of course, a responsibility on earth to worship God. And heaven, in heaven, worship will be so natural for us and normal for us, and it ought to be that for us now. The more we understand who God is and what Christ has done and the depths of his love, the more natural, the more normal worship is. In other words, it's abnormal, it's unnatural for us to know the story of the gospel, to know the person of, of Jesus and not to worship. That's an unnatural state for us. And so let's note some things about worship we see in verse 8. 
The Bible says when Jesus took the scroll, the four living creatures, and remember, I believe those to be a cherubim, angels, and the 24 elders, I believe these to be people, the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Notice the posture. They fell down before the Lamb. Now, we can worship God anytime, any place, anywhere, of course, but there's something about the posture of the elders. When they see the Lamb, their natural response, when they recognize who God is, they see more of who they are, and they fall before the Lord and worship Him. They bow before Him. And listen, there's no pride in their hearts. None of them could say, you know, the reason we're in heaven is because we are so good, and God really, after all, is pretty lucky to have someone like us. Let's face it. We are pretty skilled, mad talents, great abilities. We're very, God's fortunate. None of that in heaven. There's no pride in heaven. In fact, it's just the opposite. They humble themselves before the Lord, and they recognize that the Lord is worthy, Jesus is worthy, and they also recognize that apart from the Lord, we're not. And so they kneel before him. The Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, we like the he will lift you up part. And listen, God will lift you up. That is, in Christ, God makes you more than conquerors. More than, God adopts you into his family. His, his view of you is so high and great. He declares you righteous and holy in Christ. But I want you to see that that comes not by our merit, but by the merit of God. Not by our works, but by his work on our behalf. And so our response is humility, not pride. Not God, you're fortunate to have someone like me. I may deign to serve you in some way. It's not that. They kneel before the Lord. That's really the spirit of worship. And notice there's music in heaven. The Bible says each one had a harp. Each one had a harp. There's music. God didn't have to make a world with music, did he? He could have made it. It's sort of like uh, people who are colorblind don't really know what color is. If they have that full, the full spectrum of that, they just see everything in gray. God could have done that for us. We wouldn't know what music is. But God made a world of color so we can see the beauty of a sunset or the beauty of a butterfly. Spring will come one day. One day it'll be spring here. Little butterflies will come and you'll see their beauty. God could have made them just with shades of gray, but he made them with a myriad of colors. And God made music. Some of you are very music-oriented and some of you not so much. But it's a great gift. Even if you're not maybe a gifted singer, perhaps you recognize the value of music. And I want to just say a word about it in connection to worship. So we might think of it like this. God wants our head and our heart and our hands. I mean, God wants us. And let's think of it in this way. He wants our head, our logic, our thinking, our heart, our emotions, our hands, our service. And maybe you say, you know, God, I'll give you part of me. I'll give you whatever it is. And can I just say a word to you, uh, especially you guys. Some of you women may have the same, but a lot of guys have the same, this is the same mentality. So just listen for a second, guys. Maybe you've said, all right, I know God wants my head. He wants me to be logical. And by the way, you don't have to set your mind aside to come to church. God wants you to engage your mind. It's a reasonable faith. He wants you to know the truth. He wants you to search the scriptures. Read them for yourselves. Study them for yourself. You can learn more about the things of God. God wants you to engage your mind. Give your mind to the Lord. God wants you to use your hands. That's your service. Your Christian life is not just about what's in it for me or what do I get, but it's about what do I do, what do I give, how do I help. God wants you to serve to care, to minister. And so there's something great about doing. And maybe some of you men, are a little, I'm a little bit more on the 
head side, logical side, the hand side, do something. And you may say, all right, that's great. I'll give God my head and I'll, be a lo- I'll try to be logical, maybe read some of what God says, maybe learn a little bit of what he teaches. And I'll give him my hands. I'll do something. Maybe there's something I can do for the Lord in some way. Great. But I'm not an emotional. And I'll just tell you, I'm not as high on the emotional side as, as some. But God made me to be a logical creature and an emotional creature. God made me to have that. So I'm not like a soloist, but I'm going to sing praise to God. And I do that because God gave me this gift of music and the gift of singing for a reason. Now maybe, maybe that's, for some of you, you love to sing, and I'm glad that you do, but I know there are many of you men like me, and you want to just sort of not participate in singing, and I, I want to push you just a little bit and say, listen, I, you don't have to sing pretty, maybe you can't. You don't have to sing necessarily really loud in this place, but you ought to sing. You ought to sing praise to God. Can I tell you why? Because he's worthy. Because it's a means by which you can give praise to him. Because God made you to be an emotional creature, not just logical, but also an emotional creature. And there's something about connecting that logic and emotion together and singing that is a powerful tool. And in heaven, we see, the, we see this gift of music given to us. And notice, there's prayer in heaven. The Bible says there are golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So apparently prayer is a pretty valuable thing. It's filling golden bowls. And when we pray, we are talking to the God who made the universe, and he invites us to pray. And he loves our prayer. And our prayers don't go in vain. They're not forgotten. And it's described, they're described here as being contained in this bowl of great worth and the prayers of the saints. And by the way, when you say saints, you may say, well, that's not me. I mean, that's some like mythical Christian creature of some sort. No, it's talking about those who have been declared holy. And in Christ, if you come to know Christ as Savior, God's forgiveness is so great and the blood of Jesus so sufficient that you are declared holy and righteous before God, forgiven of your sins completely so that God looks at you, not through the sins of your life, which you, of course, know about yourself, which God, of course, knows about you, but forgiven because Jesus paid the price and you're declared holy. That's what the word saints is about. So this is us. Our prayers matter to God. We can pray and know that God in heaven hears us and values our prayers and wants us to participate. So praise the Lord through your prayers and thank the Lord for what he's done and pray for people in your life and make your requests known to God Seek God's will. Pray, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Go to the Lord in prayer. There's a power to it. And then notice the Bible says in verse 9, and they sang a new song. They sang a new song. Why a new song? Why a new song? I mean, these are the elders. They've lived their lives in this world already. Why would they sing a new song? Why not an old song? I love old songs. I mean, old songs are great. I grew up in church. Some of you I know didn't. I grew up in church. I've sung the songs of faith all my life. I, I love the old songs. And they're great. And they're wonderful. But why a new song? Why not just sing the old songs? And may I say to you, respectfully, if you have a style of music or worship that you prefer, may I say respectfully, I don't care. 
I mean, I care about you. I care about you. I don't, I don't care about your preference. There's a thousand preferences, and whatever your preference is, great. But I want to just say a word to you about singing a new song. Because maybe you say, I want to sing an old song. And I do too. So Vicky and I started dating more than 45 years ago. She didn't correct me after the first service, so I think this is correct. More than 45 years ago. We were teenagers. We were in high school when we met and we started dating. And we dated for several years while I went through, went through college. Uh, and so there's some songs, when I hear some old songs, and my songs now are the songs that you hear on an elevator. When you get on an elevator... I'll hear some song from my past. And some of those songs, some of those old songs, I like those old songs. And I'll hear an old song, and it'll take me right back to something with me and, and Vicky. Maybe some, you know, whatever, some, some time when we were together. Uh, maybe some song when we were uh, serious about each other or sometime early in our marriage. Or, and those old songs, I hear it on the elevator. And someday your music will be on the elevator as well, I guess. And those songs that take me back, and I like that. But can I tell you something? Though Vicky and I have been married now for more than 41 years. She didn't, she didn't correct me on that one either, so I think that's right. More than 41 years. Can I just tell you? I like that I have old songs with Vicky. But my relationship with Vicky is not just about the old. It needs to be fresh and new and vibrant. Did you know that's what a marriage is supposed to be? That God wants your marriage to grow and deepen, not just to... Listen, a lot of marriages, man, they start, man, we're, and then they just fade, and, they, and it's just about their past. I need, I want my relationship with Vicky to be about something fresh and new. And listen, I love the old songs of faith. And my relationship with God, as a, a long time ago, I gave my life to Christ. And there were times in my life when I can look back and say, I really grew in my faith in those days, but I need a new song. I need something fresh and vibrant and new. It's not just about my past. It's not just about those days when I was a little kid in vacation Bible school and how God was teaching me or when I gave my life to Christ all those years ago or when I got active in a youth group and began to grow in faith or when I began to read my Bible for myself uh, and my growth in my college years or seminary days. It's a, God, I love that. I love the old. But God wants the new song. He wants the freshness. And some of you can look back and say, there was a time when I was really close to the Lord, and you love that, and maybe even the music that you like is from that generation, and you great, you can love it forever, but don't stop there. Let it be fresh and new and vibrant and real, and all the way to heaven itself, there's a new song in our heart, the same truths that never change, but a new song. And so the Bible tells us the Lamb's Sacrifice leads to worship. The more we recognize, the more we recognize what the Lord has done and who He is. The more we want to worship Him. It is natural for us, unnatural for us not to worship, and natural for us to worship the Lord here and in eternity. There's a second principle I want you to note. Would you write this down? The Lamb's sacrifice provides redemption. It provides redemption, and I want to go back to verse nine because we're going to see there the lyrics of the song. We don't have the music every. Generation puts it in its own music, but we have the lyrics, the message that never changes. We have those lyrics, and notice what the Bible says here in verse 9. Here's the new song. You are worthy. That is, they're saying, Lord, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. We are broken. We are fallen. Man, we have some baggage, some pain, and some hurt in our past. We've been selfish or self-centered. Sometimes we've forgotten who you are for long periods of time. We are not worthy, God. Even at our best, we recognize that we're still sinners and fallen. 
but you are worthy, sinless and perfect and holy. And so they give praise to the Lord. That's thanking God for who he is. They thank the Lord for what he's done. They show love to the Lord. They have appreciation for the Lord, for what he's done for them, for what he's accomplished for them. Notice the Bible says, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. And we'll see more about that in the weeks ahead. Because, here's why. Because, it's a great word there. Here's why you're worthy. We know you're worthy and here's why you're worthy. Here's what we know about it. Because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood. Because you were slaughtered, we do not ignore the death of Jesus on the cross. We don't hide from that. We don't hide from the pain, the suffering, and the sacrifice because it reminds us of the penalty of sin, the ugliness of sin, the pain of sin. And the Bible says, you purchase people. That word purchase people is about, it's the word redemption, about being redeemed or bought back. That is, God made us for himself. And in sin, we are separated from God and God buys us back. We're made for a relationship with God. Sin separates us from God. We're bought back in salvation. But, well, how? What's the cost? I mean, before, don't you want to know what something costs if you go to a restaurant? You want to know what it costs? It costs more than it did a few months ago, I'll tell you that. You want some gasoline? It costs more than it did last year, right? You want to have an idea what it's going to cost. Well, what did it cost? Was it a little small thing? Here's how. Buy because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God, for him. Here it is. By your blood. Well, you talk about a price. You talk about a reason why we worship God. Jesus didn't just pay a small thing. He didn't just give a little tip. By your blood. Slaughtered for us. This is why we worship. This is the cost of redemption. This is why we don't take lightly our faith. This is why we don't put the Lord sort of on the peripheral of our life. But we recognize how deeply he loves us. If you've ever wondered, I wonder if God really cares about me. His blood for you. His death for you. Taking your place, your penalty, your debt, your shame, Yes, he loves you. He's demonstrated it. And for who? From every tribe and language and people and nation. Every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Boy, we, we separate in our modern society over everything. We, can't, we have to be separated. Our politics separates us. Our culture separates us. Our world separates us. And the Lord says, I am redeeming people from every background, every, all the things that the world uses to divide us. I, I redeem people from every sort. All of us sinners, all of us broken, all of us needy. But we have all kinds of differences in our past. I mean, the, Lord, the world is going to separate us by all these things, tribe and language and people and nation. But God gives us the same purpose, a unity, the same Holy Spirit in us, the same salvation. We're adopted with, into the same family with the same father, the same brothers and sisters. God makes us one, though we are Many, God makes us one, though we are different. God makes us the same in, sort of, in, in terms of mission. God saves us and forgives us. I love that we can participate in seeing people come to Christ here. I love seeing people 
baptized this morning and others will be baptized soon. I I love that. Of course, I love seeing people give their life to Christ and follow the Lord. It's a beautiful thing, and I love that we can do it right here. But you know that we care about people to the ends of the earth, and we support missionaries all around the world, and we support missions. uh, Even we participate in some mission trips ourselves. I I was thinking recently about a guy I met in Cuba, and I'm ashamed to say I can't even remember his name. Years ago, I got invited to preach to pastors in Cuba. I didn't even know Americans could go to Cuba. And I got invited to preach, and there were uh, a couple hundred pastors, and they just, man, they are living in a difficult situation, and they are alive in their faith, and the church in Cuba is just growing despite great difficulties in the nation. And really, in fact, the disillusionment with materialism and politics and such in that nation have caused many to consider the things of Christ, and many have come to faith in Christ. And I thought about this older man. He was a really uh, old, older pastor, maybe the oldest pastor that was there, and he spoke English. Many of the pastors didn't because you, uh, in Cuba now you learn Russian as a second language, and, but he was old enough. He had learned English back in the days before the government changed. Man, I just thought, as I listened to him, he was wise. He had been in prison for faith. By the way, imprisoned. All the old pastors were imprisoned for faith, and he, because he loved the Lord and would not renounce faith, he found himself in prison for an extended period of time. Great, great difficulties that came with that. And I thought, man, what a privilege for me to be with him. Now, we have different cultures, and we speak differently, and we have different backgrounds, and different, what the world would say, different tribes. And yet, man, in Christ, we were just one, just one. How can that be? Because God takes broken, sin-filled people like us and he redeems us and he buys us back and he changes us from the inside out. And he makes us one in Christ. And the Bible says, the elders are singing this song, you're worthy to take the scroll, you're worthy to open its seals because you were slaughtered, you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation and we'll see in heaven people from all over. This is the song of redemption. By the way, who sings the song of redemption? It's the elders. Maybe the, uh, maybe the four living creatures, the cherubim are singing. It's been interesting for me to note that I've always thought of the angels as singing, but the Bible does not record much about angels singing. It talks about angels saying, like in Luke chapter 2, I've always thought of the angels singing about the birth of Jesus, but the Bible says the angels said or saying things like that rather than the word singing, which is an odd thing. I've just, I've not thought of it that way. And I'm not saying angels can't sing or don't sing. I don't really know that much about the details of what they do. Perhaps the cherubim are singing some with them here. Perhaps we'll get to heaven and find the angels are singing a, a good deal. We just surprising a little about that in the Bible. But I do know this, if they are singing, if in heaven we gather and the angels are singing as they very well might be, when it comes to the song of redemption, they'll have to be silent. Because they can sing about, if they can sing, the glory of God, the majesty of God, the goodness of God, but only we know the redemption of God. We're the only ones who know what it's like to be broken and scarred and dead in our trespasses and sins. And to have a God who would love us so much he would come into this world and live the life we couldn't live and die the death we deserve and, and rise from the grave for us on our behalf. Who would redeem us. Who would redeem us in salvation. Buy us back. That's our song. That's our song. 
There's a third thing I want you to note with me. And that is the lamb's sacrifice results in victory. It's always leading to victory. In verse 10, the song continues. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. I want to note these things. You made them. The Bible says about the Lord Jesus. You made them. You made them a kingdom. We have a connection to others, the Bible is saying. We're not just separate, but God puts us together. He made us for connection. We're a part of this big, giant purpose, the kingdom. It's not, our life is not just about us, but it's about being a part of something big. So let me just apply this in a couple of ways. Can I just say a, a word about the value of the local church? So the local church, was not, I did not create the idea of a local church. I didn't say one time, you know what, I need a job, so I'll maybe form the church and then I'll have a job. That wasn't, no, that's not me. God formed the church. God formed the church. So we live in a society that says the church is not any big deal and it doesn't really matter. And we have a, the Christian community in our, in our Western world especially sort of says it's not that big a deal. You can worship God on your own. You don't really need others. And the evangelical subculture even says in large measure in our generation and says to you, you're going to hear it many times in your life, it's no big deal. The church is no big deal. It doesn't really matter. Just do whatever you want on your own. We don't need each other. And can I tell you, the Bible begs to disagree. The Bible. The Lord Jesus formed the church, and he did it for a reason. And I know it's filled with imperfect people. Believe me, I'm aware of that, and I can just look in the mirror and be aware of that. And I hate, when I look at you, I, <laughs> I can be sure enough aware of it. I can, I, I, you're, we're, this is imperfect people here, right? No, I'm not talking about just you. I'm talking about the people around you. They're, they're, they're not perfect people around you. They're broken people who come, those who know the Lord as Savior have come to find redemption in Him, not self-redemption, but through Christ. And God made the local church because we connect, because we are one in mission, one in purpose, one in salvation, but we are very different in gifts and backgrounds and talents. And God loves that. He describes us like a body, and not everyone has, is, is, we're not just all the ear or the eye, we're different. We have different roles and purposes, and God puts us together in the body of Christ as he sees, sees fit for our, for our benefit and to his glory, and we need each other. We need more than just the kind of general local church. There's something powerful about the small group. I love our life groups. We have life groups, our small group Bible studies for adults, every age of adults, all the way for uh, our teenagers, our children, our preschoolers. There's a benefit in studying the Bible together, getting connected. I, I spoke recently to a couple who were, they were in our church. Uh, they came here through the military, as people sometimes do, and they were here for a while and then they moved somewhere else and I saw them again and they said man we, man, we miss the church, love the church but man that life group just so they started talking about their life group how connected they got and those other couples they were at a similar stage in life when they were here raising kids and some of the problems that come with that and they wept together with those other couples and they rejoiced with them and they struggled with them and they grew with them and they just said man we, if we see one of those couples still to this day it's like and not like family, because God made us to be a part of a kingdom. We're connected, even to the point of accountability, those like our D groups and small groups that are accountability groups. We need each other. There's a power to it. The Bible says you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. Now, I said a kingdom is having a connection to others, but priest means we have a connection. God made us for a connection to him. 
we're connected to others, but we're connected to God. In the Old Testament, the priest was the one who went to God on their behalf. So the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He's the only guy who did. He only went on the Day of Atonement once a year with the blood of a sacrifice, sprinkle that sacrifice on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And he went to God on behalf of all the people. In the New Testament, the Bible says, it's the priesthood of believers. We go directly into the presence of God. Not, no one goes for us. We go directly to God. The veil of the temple, which is between the holy place and the holy of holies, that was torn from top to bottom. And it reminded us when Jesus died, that curtain tore. And it's reminded, we're reminded that we can come right into the presence of God. The Bible says with boldness because of the blood of Jesus. You don't have to go through me or anyone else. In fact, you can't even come to Christ because grandma was a Christian, or because mom and dad prayed for you, but each person comes to the Lord directly. And God's saying, I made you for a connection with me, God is saying. I made you to know me, and God wants you. And we're made for a connection with others and a connection with him. And then the Bible says, and they will reign on the earth. Let me talk about what this means a little and then share a story. It's reminding us that we'll have victory. We're going to reign on the earth. Reign on the earth. Now, I think it's talking about three different things. It's saying we'll have victory. It's talking about the millennial reign. We'll see in Revelation chapter 20, this millennial reign, when the Lord reigns on this earth for an extended period of time. We'll see more of that later in the book of Revelation. It's a reminder of our victory over sin and its power, that not only do we have forgiveness of sin, but you can have victory in this life over whatever temptations and sins are a part of this world. You don't have to stay a victim to your past or to your temptations, but God will give you victory in this world, in this world of time and space. And it's a promise of victory in eternity, that we will have a relationship with God that lasts forever and that we can have victory. And we need to know this because the Lord is telling us here the outcome and that victory was accomplished. So I um, recently read another book on Ulysses S. Grant, but it, you know, like it, I don't know. I've read lots of Civil War books, and I, I don't want to ever like, have to be brave enough to be a soldier. I'll just read about other people who are brave enough to be soldiers, and so I'll read about Civil War Grant or someone. And Ulysses S. Grant, who, by the way, was not named Ulysses S. Grant. His name was Hiram Ulysses Grant, and he went by Ulysses, his middle name. And so when his dad signed him up for West Point without even, getting, without even talking to Ulysses, he didn't even talk to him about it, just signed him up, and he had to get a congressman to recommend him. And the congressman knew his name was Ulysses. That's what he went by, his middle name. And his last name was Grant, but he, he didn't know his middle name, so he, put, uh, he thought maybe it would be the maiden name of the mother's common in those days to do it. So he called him Ulysses S. Grant. Simpson was the maiden name, Ulysses S. Grant. And he got to West Point, and he said, they said, what's your name? And he said, Hiram Ulysses Grant. And they said, we don't have a Hiram Ulysses Grant. Uh, there's a Ulysses S. Grant. And he said, all right, that's me. And so the army, what the army says is what the army does. And so they just, that's who he was for the rest of his life. He went off and served in various ways and finished schooling, went to the Mexican War, it was called then, and war with, uh, U.S. and Mexico, and then served some posts out distant places and didn't finish very well, deeply missed his wife and kids and got out of the military under less than happy circumstances, unsuccessful in life. His cabin here in St. Louis area is called, called a hard scrabble. That tells you a little bit about the kind of success he had uh, here farming in our region, hard scrabble. And then just really 
difficulties and struggles, and then came the Civil War, and he was just obviously qualified to assist in that effort. And he got put into some circumstances. He was really an amazing man. Just, he was one of the few generals who could see the big picture well, who was aggressive when he needed to be aggressive, and um, just began to accomplish some big things. And I've read along in this book about him. I've read others about him. And Vicksburg was always a fascinating uh, battle site. It's amazing that, they, that Grant and his forces took Vicksburg. When they got, they, lots of different efforts there, but when he got around the south side of Vicksburg, he, instead of going to Vicksburg, he went to Jackson, Mississippi, and fought a battle there. Completely surprising to everyone. Cut cut off from his supply chain. You're not supposed to do that. And then came back to Vicksburg. It's really an amazing thing. I wasn't even nervous for him in all of that. When I was reading about him in the East, when he's facing Robert E. Lee, all the battles, all the way to Petersburg and fall of Richmond and Appomattox. I, didn't, I wasn't nervous for him at all. You know why? Because I already knew the outcome. Oh, yeah, he had struggles and battles and difficulties, but I knew the outcome. I knew the results. I knew that victory was already accomplished. Can I tell you something? When you face battles and difficulties and struggles in life, if you know Christ as Savior, can I tell you something? You don't have to live in fear and worry and doubt because the victory's already been accomplished. That's what the end of the book is about. The victory's already accomplished. Christ has already won the victory. Death's already been defeated. God's already made the promises. It's already been accomplished. We can trust God with our lives and our future. We're going to, we, we can know that God made, made us a kingdom and priest to, to himself and that we'll reign on the earth. God has already made these promises and victory is ours. It's already complete. It's already secured. And that happened because the lion and a lamb, one with great power and one willing to sacrifice. All the power to create the universe would come into this world and sacrifice for me. And we can be forgiven and we can be healed and we can have victory by his blood. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Some of you are here who need to be saved. And the Lord's reminded you that you're a sinner who needs a Savior, and he does that so that you'll see your need for Christ, that you won't be able to depend upon religion or goodness or anything else to save you. You need Christ. And I want to ask you this day to repent of your sin and place your trust in Jesus who lived for you, who died for you, who rose from the grave for you. Receive him as Savior. Give your life to Christ. He'll save you. Christian, can I ask you to remember this lamb who was sacrificed for you so that your worship is real and genuine, so that God has your heart as well as your head and your hands. Can I ask you to remember the price of that redemption, the sacrifice that was made on your behalf? Can I remind you of the victory that is promised, secured already, so that you'll trust him in every circumstance? Father, I thank you for this book of the Bible, this, these verses that remind us of who you are and what you've done and how we can see our lives and our future through your purposes, through your history, through your future. And we want to trust you. Father, do a work in the lives of people. For those who need to be saved, I ask you to bring conviction to them, Father, so that they will come to know you. 
and for Christians to realize who you are and what you've done so that we don't take it lightly, so that you're not at the edge of our life, but so that we see you rightfully in the, the, the place of authority in our lives, the center of our lives, that your name would be glorified. And help us to, Lord, praise you now as we will one day praise you when you see, we see you face to face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.